Uh, my name is John Hamry, uh, the president here at CSIS, and uh, we're delighted to have all of you here today. Um, when we have events like this uh, for guests who are not uh, familiar with CSS, I always start with a little safety announcement. We're responsible for your safety. I'm not worried about the foreign minister. He's got people here that are going to take care of him. But I am worried about all of you. If anything happens, we'll hear a voice. I'll ask you to follow me. We're going to go out either that door over there or the door behind me. Uh, we'll take it down to the street. Uh, the stairs are right right beside that door. We'll take two left-hand turns and a right-hand turn, go over to National Geographic, and I'll buy ice cream for everybody. We're going to be just fine, but I want you to know, please follow our directions if we have to do anything. Um, it's, a, it's a real privilege to have Foreign Minister Koreshi here with us today, and um, he's, uh, he's a distinguished uh, political leader for Pakistan. He's held many positions in Pakistan uh, and he's dedicated his professional life to Pakistan. Uh, we were having a brief conversation uh, before we came down and I say it's Washington is doesn't have a very good understanding of Pakistan. It's a little like having a a documentary on television and the power or the noise goes out every 40 seconds, you know, and you're trying to figure out what is the story. You know, it's just because too much of our understanding of Pakistan is derived from other controversies or other big problems in the region. So we think about Afghanistan, Pakistan, we call it AFPAC, huh? you know, or we talk about, uh, you know, the India-Pakistan crisis of Kashmir. I mean, it's a derivative set of issues. Or now, increasingly, China and China's role in Pakistan. So we have all of these kind of, we, we, look, we don't look at Pakistan as a country. We look at Pakistan as being in the midst of a complicated region with lots of very complex geopolitics, and we don't understand the nation. And so part of our goal today is to try to have you here unfiltered, you know, one of Pakistan's great leaders who's going to talk to us today about Pakistan's national interest, its national directions, and how Pakistan wants the United States to understand its, its journey. It's going to be a good afternoon, and it's going to, I'll say, after the foreign minister gives his remarks, uh, my colleagues, uh, Seth Jones and Dan Rundy, are going to come up and join him, and they'll engage in a bit of a dialogue and then bring you into this conversation. It'll be a very important afternoon. So could I ask you, with your very warm applause, please welcome to the stage His Excellency, the Foreign Minister of Pakistan, Minister Qureshi. Please. Good afternoon, and thank you for showing up. President Henry, for inviting me, I'd like to thank you uh, to speak at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm honored to be at the CSIS, which enjoys a richly deserved reputation as a center of excellence for South Asian studies. I'm also delighted to be with distinguished gathering which includes scholars, opinion makers, and so many familiar and friendly faces. I'm visiting Washington at a critical time, both in our region and internationally. There is the unabated human rights and humanitarian crisis in Indian-occupied Jammu and Kashmir, where eight million Kashmiris have remained under an inhuman lockdown for more than five months. There is the Afghan peace and reconciliation process that has entered a crucial phase. In this fluid, uncertain regional and global environment, we believe a strong, stable, thriving Pakistan-US partnership is vitally important. I'm hopeful to share our perspective on where we are in the region and how the evolving scenarios impact this pivotal relationship between our two countries.
The central theme and consistent thread that runs through the foreign policy choices that Pakistan is making today is seeking peace and promoting development. The inextricable link between peace and development is the conceptual framework for our endeavors, both domestically and internationally. Before I delve in the external domain, let me very briefly remind our August friends that our government took office in August 2018. In all the months that have followed, Prime Minister Imran Khan's highest domestic priority have been included stabilization of the economy, improved governance, combating corruption, and pursuing socio-economic development goals for, a more, for more than 210 million people. With serious efforts on economic turnaround is already uh, discernible. Key indicators are improving. Our international ratings are being upgraded. Pakistan is increasingly becoming projected as a major tourist destination for 2020. As the reality is transforming, the image is changing as well. In order to sustain this national development effort, we need a peaceful external environment for a sustained period of time. Uh, let me turn to the region. Iran, right now, is a subject on everyone's mind. In fact, my visit to the United States is one leg of a wider trip that has previously taken me to Iran and Saudi Arabia. I've been instructed by the Prime Minister to convey Pakistan's message in all three capitals, that is Tehran, Riyadh, and Washington. Pakistan will, be, will only be a partner for peace. It will not be a part of any war in the region. Pakistan has close ties with both Saudi Arabia and Iran. We have a special relationship with Saudi Arabia with a long-standing tradition of always standing by each other in times of need. We are grateful for the support we got in the early days of our government in managing the economic headwinds. Similarly, Iran is a close friend and neighbor, a long border, and historical and cultural links between the two countries uh, together. Some of you may not know that Pakistan's embassy, uh, the embassy of Pakistan uh, in Washington, has also looked after Iranian interests in the United States since Islamic Revolution. Deeply cognizant of the security and the economic perils that a new war or a military confrontation entails, Pakistan has been ready from the outset to support efforts for diffusing tensions and removing misunderstandings. In last September, Prime Minister Imran Khan took an initiative to approach the leadership of the countries concerned with a view to playing our role in facilitating a peaceful solution of differences and disputes through diplomatic means. In the recent phase, Pakistan welcomes the indication given by both the United States and Iran to de-escalate tensions. We clearly see space for diplomacy here, and we believe this space must be optimally utilized. In my interactions, I have consistently called on all parties to exercise maximum restraint, avoid any further escalatory step, move towards diffusing tension, and agree to be constructively engaged. We hope our collective endeavors would create an effect as we encourage the parties concerned to go beyond the declared intentions of de-escalation and take practical steps to preserve the peace. Teetering on the brink, the world is directly yearning to see a glimmer of hope. All Pakistanis know that our country and region will 
not know real peace until our Afghan brothers and sisters are at peace, both within and without. We know this because we have suffered with the people of Afghanistan. Remember that our encounter with the Afghan tragedy did not begin on the morning of September 11, 2001. It began when the first Soviet troops marched into Afghanistan in December 1979. It began when the first of what would at one point become five million Afghan refugees came to Pakistan. That is how long the people of Pakistan have suffered the blowback from conflict and instability in Afghanistan. It is now 40 years and counting. For context, just remember, this is more than half of our life as an independent nation. Let me also add that since 9-11 alone, over 70,000 Pakistani security forces and civilians have made the ultimate uh, sacrifice in the fight against terrorism. Our economy has suffered over $150 billion in direct economic losses, the indirect costs that the war against terrorism has imposed by disrupting our natural economic trajectory is just incalculable. Both Pakistan and the US have shed too much blood and expended too much treasure. We want to honor the memory of our fallen soldiers and countrymen by successfully accomplishing the mission in Afghanistan. Pakistan had long argued that there is no military solution to Afghanistan. Prime Minister Imran Khan was one of the first leaders in the region who consistently advocated a political route towards peace in Afghanistan. This is why we welcome President Trump's bold initiative for promoting a political settlement in Afghanistan. Pakistan's positive role in facilitating the Afghan peace process, including the Taliban-US talks, is internationally acknowledged. There is hope today that 2020 could be the year for peace in Afghanistan. While we have made significant progress, much more needs to be done. Patience and perseverance are indispensable. We need to remember that peace in Afghanistan is ultimately a shared responsibility. Pakistan will and is playing its role, but it alone cannot do all that is needed. The international community and important regional players have to play their part. At the same time, we have to be vigilant against spoilers. Sadly, not every country in the broader region wants to see peace in Afghanistan. While we sincerely work for peace in Afghanistan, we must also sharpen our focus on preparations for the post-conflict phase. Pakistan hopes that there would be no precipitate action and that international withdrawal would be phased and orderly. It is in no one's interest to repeat the mistakes of the 1980s. Continued international engagement for reconstruction and sustained development would be pivotal. It would also help create conditions for the honorable return of Afghan refugees in Pakistan and elsewhere. We hope that the United States and other partners would work with Pakistan as we politically mainstream and economically develop our uh, former tribal areas. Economic activity along the Afghanistan-Pakistan border would, be benefit, uh, would benefit both sides. There is another compelling reason for us to see peace firmly established in Afghanistan. For too long, Pakistan-US relationship has remained hostage to the Afghan issue. We want this rather unhelpful framework to change. Pakistan-US relations are too significant and possess too huge a potential to be confined to the Afghan prism alone. Peace in Afghanistan will help both sides take a fresh look 
at all that we can do together to enrich our historic relationship. The present regional scenario also makes the challenge of securing peace more complicated. We firmly believe the gains made so far be protected and the evolving situation, particularly the events since January the 3rd in the region handled in a way that any negative impact on the peace process in Afghanistan is avoided. Having come this far, there should be no, uh, there should be zero tolerance for any setbacks. Prime Minister Imran Khan has always envisioned a peaceful neighborhood. After winning the elections in July 2018, he promised that if India took one step forward for peace, Pakistan will take two. He lived up to that pledge and made repeated efforts to change the symbolism and substance of this historically troubled relationship. Unfortunately, India spurned every positive gesture, driven as it was by myopia, ill-placed arrogance, and most importantly, domestic electoral calculations. Harboring hyper-nationalism by stoking anti-Pakistan sentiment to win elections, India nearly pushed the two countries into a war last February. That we managed to step back from the brink is almost entirely due to the restraint shown by Pakistan and the statesmanlike handling by Prime Minister Imran Khan of the captured pilot issue. Alas, the BGP government repeatedly interpreted our commitment for peace as a sign of weakness. We had hoped that after the Indian elections, the BGP government would display more maturity. It would recognize that Pakistan and India should be fighting poverty and hunger together rather than fighting each other. Instead, the RSS-inspired BJP government has embarked upon the project of turning India into a Hindu Rashtra. The adherents of Hindutva and Akhand Bharat have established this ascendancy with disastrous consequences for all in India and the world to see. On August 5th, India tried to change the disputed status of Jammu and Kashmir and alter its demographic structure, breaking all relevant international laws and violating several UN Security Council resolutions in the process. India has been seeking to break the will of the Kashmiri people by imprisoning them in their homes and imposing a communications blockade that continues to this day. Thousands of Kashmiris, particularly young boys, have been imprisoned, tortured. Even children as young as nine have not been spared. The Indian narrative that Kashmir is India's internal part is firmly refuted by its being on the Security Council agenda. If this were not the case, why would the French president raise uh, it with the Indian Prime Minister? Equally insulting to the intelligence of the world community is the bizarre Indian argument that it is for economic development of the Kashmiris. Yes, economic development being delivered at gunpoint by over 900,000 occupation troops. If not addressed, the crisis in Kashmir has the potential to become a flashpoint between the two countries with strategic capabilities. When the Kashmir crisis began in August, Prime Minister Imran Khan warned the world about the BGP government's nexus with the RSS and its fascist ideology. Initially, some of our friends felt we were exaggerating. Today, Prime Minister Imran Khan's warning is being vindicated by events inside India, uh, and everybody recognizes that. The mask has slipped, and the reality of Narendra Modi's worldview is fully exposed. The internet 
shutdown in occupied Kashmir is already the longest ever imposed by a democracy. If today we can call India one. The passage of the Citizen Amendment Act and the National Register of Citizens are raising fundamental questions about the ideals like democracy and secularism that India's founding father passionately advocated. It is perhaps symptomatic of the divergent trajectory of our two countries that when the Indian Supreme Court was handing over the land on which the historic Babri Mosque had once stood in Ayodhya uh, to the same mob of Hindu religious fanatics that had raised the mosque to the ground in 1992, Pakistan was opening the Kartarpur Corridor for Sikh pilgrims from India and across the world. Indian state terrorism and repression of in Indian occupied German Kashmir and the BGP government's incitement of religious hatred and frenzy in India have dangerous implications for the region. Let's not forget that this Indian government has a history of externalizing its domestic problems. You only need to cast your mind back to the Pulwama episode. In the run-up to the Indian elections last year, when India sought to deceive the world by a never-ending stream of lies. We fear that we are once again reaching such a crisis. Every other day, some new Indian politician or military official makes a veiled threat against Pakistan. Meanwhile, we all followed reports of capture of Indian police officer Devinder Singh whose footprint is now being seen in some major terrorist attack, which India itself orchestrated and blamed on Pakistan. We have been consistently warning the world community about another false flag operation against Pakistan, that Devinder Singh was accompanied by two militants on his way to Delhi in close proximity to the Republic Day celebrations should not be lost on anyone. Our government wants peace in the neighborhood. We want, we need peace in order to focus on achieving our domestic agenda for economic reform and development. But we are not prepared to pay any price for peace with India. Certainly not our dignity and certainly not without resolving the Kashmir dispute in a just manner. We know that President Trump is profoundly worried uh, by the Kashmir situation, and we welcome his repeated offers of mediation in resolving the Kashmir dispute. The United States alone commands the moral authority and respect in South Asia to resolve the long, longest pending dispute on the UN agenda. As Prime Minister Imran uh, told President Trump last July, the United States will have the gratitude and prayers of over two billion people in South Asia if it did so. We hope President Trump is successful in realizing his goal and can make a lasting contribution to substantial peace in South Asia. That could be uh, his enduring legacy. Pakistan-US relationship has always uh, served our mutual interests. We often hear U.S. officials say Pakistan has much to gain by working with the United States. That is undoubtedly true. But what is also true is that the United States also has much to gain by working with Pakistan. That is what history of our relations teaches us. We appreciate the assistance the United States has historically provided to us in the areas as diverse as agriculture, energy, defense, and education, the United States played a critical role in building our agriculture base as well as our defense cap uh, capacity during the 50s and the 60s. But Pakistan also contributed immensely and obviously unquantifiably by helping the United States during the Cold War, including by facilitating US-China rapprochement which decisively tilted the balance in favor 
of the free world. Pakistan would not have achieved the success it did in fighting terrorism without assistance from the United States. But equally, Al-Qaeda would not be the shadow of its former self today if Pakistan had not helped with the campaign against its leadership and cadres. Despite our shared frustrations with the pace of overall progress in Afghanistan, let us not forget that the terrorist organization that attacked the United States on the horrible September morning in 2001 stands degraded and diminished today. This is our joint success. Pakistan desires a relationship with the United States that is based on mutual respect, mutual interest, and mutual benefit. While we continue to work with the United States for peace in Afghanistan and for security in post-Afghanistan war region, our relationship should be larger than Afghanistan and counterterrorism. It is also a concern for us that there is a growing tendency to view Pakistan-China relations through the lens of contemporary geopolitics. I want to remind you that Pakistan's relationship with China is nearly as old as our relationship with the United States. Force-fitting Pakistan-China relations into the currently popular framework of great power competition distorts the picture. For too long, we have lamented the lack of connectivity between the regional economies. Now, in the form of CPAC, we have a project that will help Pakistan's economy develop uh, economic development goals and provide impetus to economic integration in South and Central Asia. Far from being suspicious of CPAC, uh, supporters of peace in the region should welcome the project. Uh, for all the talk of great power transitions and realignments, the logic for a strong Pakistan-US uh, relationship is unarguable. Besides securing peace in Afghanistan, we have strategic convergence on preserving peace and stability in South Asia and promoting mutually beneficial trade and investment ties. Pakistan is a nation of over 200 million people, two-thirds of whom are under 30 years of age. We sit at the crossroads of China, South and Central Asia. Pakistan is a conduit to a market of another three billion people. The economic potential is immense. The U.S is our major trading partner and a significant source of remittances. We would like to create more trade and investment opportunities for both countries. Indeed, when President Trump and Prime Minister Imran Khan met in Washington in July, President Trump had spoken of increasing trade by 20 times. Pakistan is an energy deficient country. The U.S. is emerging as a big energy supplier. This newfound complementarity adds another reason for our two countries to cooperate and collaborate. Meanwhile, one million plus Pakistani Americans remain a bridge between uh, the two countries. Pakistani Americans have always been high achievers in their areas of professional endeavor. But what has struck me is this time that many more young Pakistani Americans are politically engaged that was not uh, the case earlier. As a politician, I'm always happy to see young people who have a passion for public service and civic engagement. This innate yearning for democratic participation among young Pakistani Americans is a reminder of the many values that stem from their hyphenated identities. In this commonality of values, that is ultimately the bedrock of any strong relationship. Friends are precious commodities. One does not turn one's back on old friends just because one has made new ones. 
Let me reiterate that in our common pursuit of security, stability, uh, and prosperity, Pakistan and the United States have much to gain by working together. I thank you for your attention and would be happy to take any questions if you may. Thank you very much, Foreign Minister. Have a seat, seat in the middle. We'll flank you. Of, of American Public Service, and then my friend, uh, Ambassador Robin Rafel, who's a, an advisor here at CSIS and has been a real partner to us. So, and we haven't been able, we wouldn't be able to do the work that we do on, on Pakistan without, without Ambassador Rafel. So, Foreign Minister, thanks for, for being here, and thanks for your um, very complete um, speech. I think it was, uh, uh, I think it was, it was very complete, and I covered a lot of issues. And I agree with you that when we make new friends, we shouldn't turn our back on old friends. I think that's a very important message um, for us here in Washington as we as we uh, as things change uh, in the in the region. Uh, Seth and I have a, a couple of que several questions for you. Um, uh, I, I wanted to start with. Um, I think you saw. I wrote an article in thehill.com uh, about our relationship, and um, and I suggest that we need to base our relationship with Pakistan on something other than Afghanistan. I really liked your phrase that. In our relationship with Pakistan is being held hostage by Afghanistan. I thought that was a very elegant way of describing it. I think that's right. One, one way we could reset our relationship is through economic ties, and I think you covered some of that. And, and I, th I think you agree with, we think we're in agreement on that. But I think, and I talked about some of the opportunities, but I, I don't think we talk enough about all the opportunities that the United States has, has with Pakistan. And you talked about energy, but I, I hope you might talk about several others because I think that you're an, you're an avid agriculturalist, you said in your biography. I, I talk, about, talk about perhaps agriculture as, a, as an opportunity, talk about tourism. Perhaps there's others as well, but I, you know, I, I just I talk about it because I think that is where I think we ought to be resetting our relationship and you, and you indicated that in your remarks. Uh, let me uh, begin uh, with agriculture. We are still an agrarian economy with a lot of potential. Uh, we have a history of uh, cooperation in uh, agriculture. The first green revolution that came about in Pakistan in the 1960s was helped by the United States. Mm. We got seed from here, we got scientists from here, and we jointly collaborated for a better future for the ordinary Pakistani working the land. I think we today need another uh, uh, collaboration because Pakistan, look at the uh, location. Pakistan is sitting right in the middle of uh, an area which has high purchasing power and has uh, food insecurity. Investments in agriculture uh, through, through uh, seed development uh, through new, new research can immediately enhance our productivity. With, uh, with the present level of research and productivity, we are generating enough for ourselves and we can throw up exportable surplus. But with a new injection of technology and research, we have the potential of uh, producing for the wider region. You have the Gulf on one side, you have Central Asia states, and U.S. investments uh, uh, for the food processing industry uh, can, you know, Pakistan can be a hub for, you know, uh, uh, your uh, products going out uh, to other countries. But, Professor, I would argue you could double or triple your agricultural production in your country. Is that, that's not a crazy statement, is it? It's a very realistic statement. Experts feel that if we just bridge the gap of productivity between the average and the progressive farmer, mm. our production gets doubled immediately. So I'm an enormous fan of Pakistani 
um, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the fruit, the uh, mango. mango, mango, blow, blow your socks off, the blow your socks off delicious. So, so for Mr. But there are other things too. Just let me just take advantage. Cause I, like I said, we spend so much time. We are, we are, a, you know, a, we, we're going to talk a lot about security, but I just, let me just double click on this a little bit more. Talk about, um, we've talked about tourism. So no one, you know, I think, um, country brands change. If we were talking, we were sitting in this room 25 years ago and I said, let's go visit Croatia. People said, oh no, I don't want to go visit Croatia. People are dying to go to Croatia. If we were sitting in this room 20 years, 20 years ago, we just said, let's go to Colombia. People said, oh no, I don't want to go visit Colombia. People are dying. I went fishing in Colombia about nine months ago. There's enormous tourism potential in your country. Talk about that. It, Dan, if I can just interrupt just, just uh, for, for the audience. The last time, and I mentioned this to you earlier, Foreign Minister, the last time I was in SWAT, was about 10 years ago, um, and the security situation there was, uh, was, a, was a tough one. There was active combat. But one of the things, when I left SWAT at that time, uh, that I promised myself was the next time I would come back would be to go skiing at one of the you. resorts. I'm going so, with you. So uh, th that, that's an example of my commitment to tourism <laughs> in Pakistan. Well, I can, I can assure you the dramatic improvement of law and order uh, in, in, in SWAT and all over the country is uh, a case in point where you can actually go and ski in Naltar and in Malb Jabba in SWAT. It is possible. Pakistan has been identified as the 10 top destinations for tourism uh, in 2020. There is a huge potential. People are hospitable. Uh, uh, the only problem was the security environment. That has changed and has changed for the better. What we need is uh, investment in uh, uh, infrastructure. And obviously, as the numbers go up, as the appetite grows, uh, you know, uh, investors will be attracted. We are talking, we've, uh, you know, been, been talking to the Turks, uh, they've done well in tourism. We've been talking to the Malaysians, they generate over $20 billion to tourism. Uh, uh, why can't we do it? I think that is possible. And the interest the government, this government is taking on promotion of tourism, I think, uh, will not just create jobs because it is mm. service related, it will create jobs and it will also change the image of the country. What we are suffering from is an image problem. But people who have traveled to Pakistan, congressmen or other ordinary citizens who have traveled to Pakistan, once they have returned, they have returned with a different view with a different image, what they read, what they see on television, and when they go and meet people and see for themselves, it's a different story. Let me just repeat, country brands can change. I'm just gonna list some countries. Indonesia in 1998, mm -hmm. people are, I like going to Indonesia, a great place. Panama in 1989, I like going there. A lot of people go there. Croatia, 1995, great place. I've been there on a tour, tour boat. Colombia, 1999. Today I was going. I went fishing, deep sea fishing. So why? So there's no reason in the world that the country brand of Pakistan can't and won't change. And I actually think, with the right investments and the right political leadership, the country brand is going to change. So we are confident. Let me just double, so just and then I want to so yep. give you give the floor. But the other thing I've always thought, Foreign Minister, is that Pakistan could be the Saudi Arabia of hydropower. Just, just talk, you talked about liquefied natural gas and so we're an exporter of, of, of gas and, and thank goodness for that. But, but you have enormous potential energy sources in your own country. Talk a little bit about that and I'll, I'll, just because I think that's another investment opportunity. We have uh, a huge uh, potential for hydrogen generation. Uh, there are, we've identified uh, a number of sites uh, on the cascading Indus Valley uh, that can generate uh, energy plus a store water uh, for agriculture. We have, what we have is we have uh, a lean period and we have a water surplus period. So what we require is storages, you know, for the lean period. So investments in uh, 
hydro dams is the way forward. There is a huge potential. It's cheaper, environmentally friendly, uh, and we don't have to import the energy that we have, uh, you know, to overcome the uh, deficiency and the crisis that we were facing because of outages was uh, installation of thermal plants. Now, they're very expensive. They're not just pollute the environment, they're very expensive and that is affecting our uh, cost of production. So here is a step where we can move very quickly. Unfortunately, there was some political wrangling on which projects to undertake and what not to undertake. I think we've overcome that hump and now we've identified a number of sites where there is a political consensus and the Council of Common Interests, which is, is a body that represents different federating units of the country, have agreed to. So that is a potential. Here again, investments and technology from the West can be utilized. So let me, I'm going to hand over to Seth, but we're going to take questions via uh, index cards and pencils. And so I'm going to ask my friends to start, pa start thinking about questions and Seth and I will sort them out and ask the, the questions to the foreign minister. So my colleague here is going to be passing them down. So please pass them down and get pencils, and we'll collect them in about 15, 10 or 15 minutes. But I know Seth and I have a number of other questions. Seth, over to you. Yeah, let me, let me first um, just echo one of the statements you made earlier, and Dan, Dan did as well, that the conversation, including in Washington, over the past two decades has focused predominantly on security. And, uh, and I, I think it is long since time for that conversation to shift to business, commercial ties, uh, trade, and that's an important and a much healthier long-term relationship. So I fully support that. Uh, uh, we should have had this conversation long ago. But let me turn to one of the issues that you are um, uh, here for and have been talking to uh, folks in Saudi Arabia and, and in Iran itself about, and that is the increased uh, tensions with your neighbor Iran, particularly U.S.-Iranian tensions. Um, you have talked recently either in person or by phone to uh, the Iranians, to the Saudis, uh, to the Russians, among others. And so two questions that, that your thoughts would be very important here is, first, what are your concerns about escalation here? And how serious, from your perspective, uh, would escalation be uh, as it impacted uh, Gulf of uh, the, the Strait of Hormuz or, or broader tension in the region? And the second question is, one of the things you and others have talked about is, is, is a term called maximum restraint. What does that mean in the sense of what steps have you been talking to individuals about that could de-escalate the situation? Well, the, uh, it goes without saying that escalation is not just dangerous, it can be disastrous. Uh, Middle East and that part of the world has seen, is seeing enough conflicts and from the impression that I drew from the engagement that I had with different foreign ministers was the region does not want, does not need another conflict. Uh, and when uh, uh, there were statements made uh, on the Iranian side, which were not escalatory in nature, and the address of the president on the 8th of January, which also uh, spoke of de-escalation, I thought uh, has uh, created a uh, space for diplomacy and that space should be utilized optimally uh, to avoid a conflict in the region. Uh, so uh, nobody uh, will be gain from another conflict in the region. And the second part was? Uh, well, what, what, is, what, is, what are de-escalatory steps that you would consider? And part of the reason I asked this question is you've just spoken recently to the Iranians. And part of what I'm interested in is, uh, and I think people here would be, is the perspective that you've heard from Tehran. How, how do they view de-escalating the situation? What did you hear from Iran? I think uh, they are 
in no mood for a conflict. They do not want a war. Mm. Uh, they feel that enough blood has been shed. And uh, I think uh, they're also saying that A, uh, the sanctions uh, imposed are hurting the ordinary Irani that ultimately they have to sort of deal with. That's one. Uh, secondly, uh, the policies that they have been pursuing have now, uh, in a way, uh, are pushing them into some kind of an isolation, and that's not good for them. So it's time to re-engage. If it's time to re-engage, they will have to revisit some of the policies that they were pursuing. What I deduced from the conversations that I had over there, that they are willing to do that. They are willing to uh, talk to all um, countries in the region. And they've said, okay, these are the five areas, which are areas of difference we have with other uh, sort of countries in the neighborhood. And we are willing to sit and talk about all of them. We are willing to sit and talk about uh, the past. Obviously, when we talk about the past, it's going to be bitter. We prefer to talk about the future. And if that, if that uh, uh, realization is dawning, I think it should be encouraged. And uh, pressure has been exercised. A clear message has been sent. But uh, pressure beyond a certain point can be counterproductive. Uh, they can get into a reactionary, reckless mode, and I think that should be avoided. Okay, so, <clears throat> Foreign Minister, your country, Pakistan, has 70% of your population is, is young, are young people. And as a percentage of your population, of young people, is the, you have the highest percentage of young people of any country in the world. That's a that is either a demographic dividend, if you have, if folks are, have education and they're trained and then there's jobs for these young people, it's an enormous demographic dividend. We've seen that, we saw this in other parts of East Asia in the 1960s. You, you could easily argue that China has, is going through its demographic dividend now and it's about to kind of, it's about to end. So really Pakistan is about to, to hit, a, could hit, if it plays its cards right, of investment, education, training, skilling, and jobs and investment, an enormous demographic dividend. On the other hand, young people can use their energy for four things. They can either use their energy for, for participating in the formal economy and jobs. They can use their energy for education. Uh, they can also use their energy, depending on the country context, of joining gangs in places like Central America or here in the United States, or joining various kinds of you know, bad, bad actors, or they can migrate. It seems to me those are, in my, my typology of where young people can put their energy, those are the four places. I'd rather put them, have them in Pakistan put their energy into door number one and door number two. So what steps are you taking, your government, what steps are your government taking? We talked about it, the in investment, we talked about the economic opportunities, that's a part of it. But how are you thinking about education and training to make sure that, that we, we, it's in our, we, the United States has a shared interest with Pakistan that the more than 100 million young people, and it's going to be more than that, channel their energies in the way that other parts of Asia have channeled their energies, and that it's an enormous demographic dividend for Pakistan and for the world. How are you getting ready for that? Well, our youth is uh, our asset. It's totally and massive. we want to convert our youth into our asset. They are very bright. Uh, totally many true. of them have uh, been to universities abroad. They are exposed. Uh, yeah. They are very supportive of democracy. You know, they have strengthened democratic values. Yeah. They are. They believe in freedoms, freedom of access, freedom of expression. Uh, they are they are critical, uh, they are objective, and they are full of potential. Uh, so, how do we harness that potential and uh, convert it into a positive 
asset. For that, our government has a clear agenda. And that's why I said our focus when we came into government was peace in the neighborhood. Why do we want peace in the neighborhood? We want peace in the neighborhood so that we can invest in people. We can invest in education. We can invest in health. We can invest in uh, improving the quality of life of ordinary people, clean drinking water, sanitation. These are the challenges that we are facing. Uh, and uh, peace uh, could be a dividend that could allow us to focus on these areas, uh, training, uh, vocational training, that's where we have to focus on, uh, not just giving them degrees, but giving them skills yes. that they can be gainfully employed. Uh, how many jobs can governments offer? You know, every government department is saturated. Uh, so. The private sector. Nine in ten jobs in the developing world are in the private yeah, sector. Exactly. Yeah. The, the private sector has to be the engine of growth. Yeah. They have to be, uh, and one has seen, I was in Japan, uh, in many European countries, there is a growing population over there. Uh, they are looking, they are looking for uh, uh, people who have skills yeah. to keep their economic momentum going. Are we ready? Are we preparing uh, to fill that need? Uh, I think our government is focusing on that. We are focusing on that. We are focusing on education. We are le uh, uh, taking a fresh look at our curriculum because having successfully defeated terrorism, now we have to have a strategy to reverse extremism. Mm. In order to reverse extremism, the best weapon to do that is education. Mm. And if we can educate our young minds, give them gainful employment, I think we're on the right track. We have seen youngsters, Pakistanis, whether they've come to the US, they've gone to Europe, England, they have done well for themselves. They have been peaceful, they've been law-abiding, and they have, uh, they have, uh, you know, from nothing. Many of them have been success stories. So, if they can be success stories abroad, why can't they be success, success stories at home? The potential is there. They were not. We did not spend enough time, enough money, enough attention on the social sectors. We intend to do that. For that, we need peace on both sides. On the western side, we worked. And hopefully, we are sitting with our fingers crossed, but there is a ray of hope. On the eastern side, we want normalization, but it seems uh, uh, the Indian side is uh, not looking at things as objectively as they should. We have no designs of aggression. We want settlement of issues, settlement of issues through dialogue. Let so, me, let me, so, just, I just want to. So, let's collect the questions. Are we collecting the questions, team? Team CSIS. Okay. So, set. yeah. Let me let me pick up on this issue of uh, of peace, particularly to the the uh, west, which which you noted. Um, Sorry, I'm getting my my east and west. That's just for the television audience. Remind. <laughs> what do you mean by east and west? Afghanistan. It's a heck of a neighborhood. Just wait for the question. Right. Okay. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about Afghanistan, and and I think you, you know anybody who has looked historically at the region, uh, and, and you mentioned December of 1979, uh, Pakistan was impacted immediately by the Soviet invasion uh, and the refugee flows, and the threat to Pakistan itself when that invasion came, and the U.S. worked closely with Pakistan uh, after that um, in support of of the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Uh, the U.S. worked closely with Pakistan in the uh, days and months after 9-11 in Afghanistan. There have obviously been periods of tension since then, but I think we're now at a period where there is a prospect for settlement. So what I wanted to ask is, is two questions here. One is, um, how serious this is a, a subject of some discussion here. How serious, from your perspective, 
uh, are the Taliban about negotiations? They seem quite emboldened on the battlefield. How, how serious are they about negotiations? And the second issue is, what do you see as some of the key areas where additional progress needs to be made, whether it's ceasefires, the Afghan constitution, ties to terrorist organizations? Where, where do we need to move and focus energy? We came very close several months ago to a meeting at Camp David, and that was called off. But if we were to try to get back to that period, what would you suggest? Well, in my view, uh, the Taliban uh, are pragmatic and they're smart. They're not foolish. They're also, they're also fatigued. Let's not forget that they've been fighting we, for- We all are. <laughs> we all are. They've also been fighting for too long. Uh, and uh, I think there's a realization, in my view, that if we expect things to go back to what they were, those days are gone. Afghanistan has changed considerably uh, and they will have to adjust to that new change. You know, you cannot, you cannot anymore deprive women from education. There's three million girls you in know, school. You, you know, that's not, that's not doable mm -hmm. and that's not acceptable, right? Uh, today there is democracy and people are getting used to democracy, right? You can always argue about how fair how credible the election process has been, but it can always improve with the passage of time. So you cannot move away from that. What uh, they should be encouraged to do is, if they are so popular, if people so like them, they should be part of the mainstream and get themselves elected. Participate the, in politics. But participate in politics, use the ballot box, and, and, and uh, advocate what they are advocating. Let the people give them the mandate to do what they're doing. Uh, and that, I think, realization is setting in. Uh, give up violence. You know, if they continue uh, to do what they've been doing, there'll be a stalemate uh, at best. Uh, there'll be no winners. Everybody, the region will lose and they will not gain. So this new, new realization is setting in and this should be encouraged further. So if I can just uh, uh, peel back this at least one layer. I mean, if we look at past peace processes, we have seen groups like the FMLN in El Salvador, and we've seen groups like uh, the um, uh, Sinn Féin and the IRA in Northern Ireland participate in the peace process as part of negotiations or after, after negotiations. So is it your sense that the Taliban would be interested or would be willing, or some senior members of the group would be willing to uh, participate in elections in the country, serve in ministries, not in a solely Taliban government, but one that was shared more broadly? You see, uh, today, the way the country is divided, it seems difficult that one faction can dominate the rest, you know. You have different, you know, ethnicities living there. You know, you have Hazaras and you have Uzbeks and you have Tajiks and you have the Bakhtuns. So they will have to, if they, if they want their country to stabilize and prosper, they will have to reconcile. And that's why it is, uh, the process is not just peace, it's peace with reconciliation. Reconciliation to, to a new, reality uh, and that is what is required one secondly as you said you know uh, you were there and then you left we feel that this time uh, there will be even if there's a successful agreement challenges will remain there so the united states and its uh, uh, friends and coalition partners a will have to uh, have a more responsible withdrawal and B, they should uh, remain engaged, uh, not to fight, but to rebuild. So the U.S. No. should remain engaged? They mm. should remain engaged because if they do not remain engaged, Afghanistan will not be able to sustain uh, the that kind of- That was our mistake in the 80s. Yes, that do not repeat 
the 80s. Do not learn from the 80s. They will need investments. They will need money. You know, how will they support uh, their existing infrastructure without international help? So we've got some really good questions. <clears throat> Uh, we've got some time to take some of them. Seth, why don't I start and then, <clears throat> so there's, we got several questions about how does Pakistan see itself vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the relations between China and the United States? You've talked about it, and <clears throat> I think, and especially in the, in the, in the light of CPEC. Well, uh, uh, there's a history to uh, U.S.-China relationship, and let's not forget that Pakistan played a constructive role Absolutely. in bringing you together. In fact, that tilt is what uh, gave you the strength, that gave the strength to the free world to, to, to check the onslaught of communism, right? Pakistan, it's not a zero-sum game. We've had, uh, as, as we have very close relations with China, and we have a historic a linkage with the U.S. Pakistan can be uh, 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 a binder, not a divider. For example, the project that you were discussing, the CPAC project. Mm. Here, it's not uh, a project, and the and these uh, the uh, economic zones that we are building along the project, they are not exclusive for Chinese investment. By all means, we would encourage and would want uh, European and American investments there. You come and see for yourself, see the potential, and, and, and take advantage of that. So it's not uh, that the Americans and, and the Europeans are not welcome there. You are welcome, and you can be part of that, and you can benefit from investments and that economic activity that is generated. So uh, Pakistan can be uh, uh, important bridge builder. We were, we still can. Great. Seth, why don't you ask him a couple questions? Yep. Uh, let me start with this one. Um, uh, the first question here is noting the protest movements that we've seen in Iran. I would also add Lebanon, Iraq, um, and a few other countries. And so the question here is, how does Pakistan view the sustained protests including in Iran, and are you concerned at all about similar protests at some point in the future in Pakistan? Mm. Well, um, depends uh, what kind of protests. People protest because uh, uh, for economic needs. At times people protest because they want jobs. At times people protest because of price hike. Obviously, you know, we are interested in stabilizing the economy so that uh, our youth is gainfully employed, uh, we can check prices, we can check inflation, uh, and uh, we inherited a very difficult situation when we came into office in August 2018. All our major macroeconomic indicators were wrong, were pointing in the wrong direction. We have successfully negotiated a new program with the IMF and uh, it's moving in the right direction. Hopefully, things will improve and things will stabilize. And that cause for protest will, will vanish. Then there are other kinds of protests. Those are ide ideological in nature. Uh, we, as I said, we are dealing with them. We have initiated a program of uh, Madrasa reform, you know, reform of our seminaries. Why? because you're dealing with a mindset and uh, we are introducing modern education mm. in them. We are in introducing vocational education in them so that uh, those uh, boys and girls who are being educated, and they are quite a big number, you know, uh, being uh, uh, educated there, they have a future for themselves, you know, and they cannot be picked up as gun uh, fodder for, you know, by, by extremist elements. So we are conscious of that and we're planning accordingly. Go ahead, no, Seth, please. Uh, so, he, so this is a, another question uh, and I'll just read it from, uh, in December 2018, the State Department designated Pakistan a country of particular concern. 
What's your reaction? What steps is Pakistan taking to address this? Particular concern vis-a-vis? Uh, religious freedom? Religious. Yeah, religious freedom. Religious. Yeah, religious freedom. <laughs> I think, uh, uh, I think uh, uh, we, were, we were baffled uh, when we saw that. Because if you come to Pakistan today, and you know, as I said, you're welcome to do so, you will see we are a multi-ethnic, multicultural society. Mm. We, have a, we, are a, we are a pluralistic society. And you will see minorities protected under law by the constitution and a general uh, attitude is accommodating. You can see churches functioning, you can see temples functioning, uh, gurdwaras over there, as I said, Kartarpur. Kartarpur is a big initiative, a big message for the Sikh community to come over and uh, visit, uh, you know, their the holy, holy shrines shrine. and, and the Sikh religion it's, are in Pakistan. Yes, and they're welcome to do that. So there is nothing of the sort. There is no single discriminatory law in place. In fact, in fact, if you look at things today, why are people in India today protesting? They are protesting against a new piece of legislation which they feel is discriminatory in nature and the discrimination is based on religion, on religion. Only the Muslims have been focused. You know, the Jains are allowed, the Christians are allowed, uh, 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 Sikhs are allowed, but only Muslims, you know, and that is creating uh, a lot of fracas over there. And many Hindus, uh, you know, with, 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 with a progressive mind, have said this is wrong. This is not what secular India stood for, and this is what this regime is changing the color, the view, and the image of India uh, in Pakistan. In fact, if, if there was some concern, that concern should have been expressed there and not here. There is no justification for this concern. All right, last question. <clears throat> it, what, what is the solution in your mind to the, to the Kashmir challenge? In, in two minutes. In two minutes in two or minutes. less. <laughs> okay. It's, it's, it's a complicated uh, question, and you want a simplistic answer. Yeah, just the simplistic answer is, you're a democracy. You believe in democratic values. Why, do not, why don't you advocate those values exercised in Kashmir? Give them the right of self-determination. Let them decide what they want. Do they want to be uh, with India? Are they happy there? So be it. And if they, if they so decide, we should you know, stop harping on that. Do they want to be with Pakistan? And if so, accept it. Let democracy. You have promised, uh, the, the Indians have promised the international community that they will give them the right you believe in uh, uh, democracy. Let's find a democratic way out. Okay. Please join me in thanking the foreign minister. This was great. Please come back.